Coming up, Australian film legend Paul Mercurio talks all things strictly ballroom. Great memories, sudden global stardom, and getting paid just $35,000 for the role. No royalties here. Stay tuned. Paul Mercurio is in the fortress. Coming to you from the mountain fortress of pop culture. You're listening to Time to Talk. Paso doble. Paso doble. Well, it was the Australian romantic comedy that put ballroom dancing on an international stage. In 1992, first-time director Baz Luhrmann premiered his debut film, a big-screen adaptation of a theatre production he had produced some years before. But it wasn't only Baz who was cutting his teeth in this film. The picture's two main stars were also brand new to film. Tara Maurice, who played our favourite Aussie underdog Fran, and, of course, Paul Mercurio, who played the determined Scott Hastings. Mr Mercurio, welcome to Time to Talk. Thanks for having me. It's hard to imagine it, isn't it, Paul, that a, a film with a first-time director, two first-time movie actors in the leads, could possibly be so wildly successful. It's a bit of a dream story. Um, it is a dream story, without a doubt. You know, there's um, a lot of people that, you know, make movies, and um, if you could sort of bottle the formula... Attempt to make a successful film, um, that would be great. Strictly kind of came along. It, I think it came along at the right time in the world, as well as a story. Um, the world kind of needed a, a bit of a fairy tale at that time. Um, the story was unusual, uh, and I guess having a first-time director and sort of two first-time main actors, there was you know none of us had kind of preconceived ideas. We just went and made a film and had fun and. Um, you know, luckily uh, or thankfully, it um, it worked. It's interesting you say the story was unusual because for me, the story was, you know, so universal, yet the way it was told, I had never seen a story told like that in film before. Yes, and, and that's that's where I would say it was unusual, you know. Um, you can kind of say that it's it's, it's based on a fairy tale, um, but the, the way Baz certainly um, told that story using the ballroom world and then also the way... Um, Baz used the film, his own sort of kind of vocabulary and film techniques with all the massive close-ups and things like that. You know, it was it was unique. Um, but the story itself, if you just pair back the story, um, Ugly Duckling, you know, becomes beautiful and um, Underdog becomes the hero. You know, that, that's pretty straightforward, really. Exactly. But it's, it's like I say, it's universal and appeals to us all. It's easy to forget the absolutely delicious way that the success of this film actually came about in Australia because it was a small-time movie. It didn't have big marketing campaign. Uh, initially, I understand, a movie distributor even pulled out from playing it in a major film theatre in Australia. So it sort of started in just little independent theatres, which, by the way, is where I saw it as a young lad skipping school, by the way, to go and see Strictly Boring. There you go. That says a lot about me. And genuinely, the way that this got out there the way people were motivated to go and see strictly ballroom was purely through initially at least 
word of mouth. The audiences were coming out and they were saying, you've got to go and see this. Yeah. So eventually, I think it was um, week three of the film that the major theatres started realising what was going on. It was playing everywhere by the end. It was one of those things that it couldn't get its funding. You know, it struggled to get funding to be made as a film and people were sort of going, who's going to go and watch a film about a ballroom dancer? And um, I think the film was almost about to fall over and then the Albert family, um, Ted Albert and his wife, I think it was Poppy, um, who owned Sony Music, they actually propped up the rest of the budget and made the movie. Um, and, you know, it's nice to say that the rest is history. The wonderful thing about Strictly, and it happened all around the world, um, is that at the end of the film, people were so excited and and happy and you know joyful and whatnot. They would stand up and clap. And this is, I mean, it happened at the Cannes Film Festival or the Cannes Film Festival when we were there. But people would tell me I went and saw it in you know a little cinema somewhere. And at the end of the movie, everyone stood up and clapped. And and they didn't yeah. leave. They didn't walk out straight away. They stayed in the theatre, watched the credits, and and stood and clapped. And um, you know, that's the power of a wonderful story and, and wonderful storytelling. You can't help but get up to your feet. And you do stay to the end of the credits because that's part of the party. You know, in fact, it's almost like the beginning of the party in a way, the credits, that song when it comes on after the success of what's gone on in the movie. It's it's quite exhilarating, especially the first time you see it. You mentioned the budget. It was a budget of $2 million shot over six weeks. No, it was $3.2 I think. Um, right. So still, you know, in in you know, in terms of um, you know commercial movies, it was a very small budget, um, and I think we shot it over seven weeks. In fact, we were filming um, late one evening, and the producer came down instead and said, "I'm sorry, we've got to stop filming. Um, we've run out of money, and we we can't pay overtime tonight, so we need to stop." And we all kind of looked at each other and went, it doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. Let's, we're having fun. Let's just keep shooting. And so we kept shooting. Um, and that's the sort of film it was. And, you know, and there was a lot of first-timers. There were some experienced actors on there too. But we were just having so much fun. Um, we really we, we believed in it. We enjoyed working with each other. We enjoyed telling the story. We enjoyed working. And um, it didn't matter really. It's always nice to get paid, you know, but um, – there are some things you'll just do because it's too important to worry about money. <laughs> you're just you're telling a story. You're having a good time. You're working with people that you love and are like-minded. So, um, and that was the nature of the film. And I think that comes out in the film as well. Twenty-two million dollars domestically it made. Eighty million around the world reportedly. I mean, this is a monster hit when you consider the budget that you just described. There, can you live off the royalties? Ha! I wish. No, I didn't get royalties. Sadly. Um, there plenty, plenty of people did, but um, unfortunately, in the same way that people were saying, "Oh, who wants to watch a film about ballroom dancing?" Um, when I eventually got the role, I did. I was a dancer with Sydney Dance Company, so I had to go and find a, an agent to represent me, and um, they did a pretty shoddy job, really. Um, you know, they, a very, very small amount of money was offered for me to do the film. Certainly, they wouldn't offer a lead actor that sort of money now. They'd be off offering ten times the amount or even more. You were um, underpaid. Sorry, you were underpaid. Oh, well, yeah, I'd say grossly underpaid. And and part of it was, um, it's a film about boredom. No one's going to watch it. And this guy, Paul McCure, who's he? He's a dancer guy. He's never acted before. You know, so they look. They paid me a pretty paltry fee, and I'm sure they paid. Um, 
Tara a paltry fee and didn't give us points, you know. Um, and my agents at the time, I guess, they, they kind of failed me. They they really should have said, okay, he's never acted. We don't know if the film's going to be any good, but, you know, give him some points then so that if it does go well, you know, he'll he'll benefit. But, no, that didn't happen. But, you know, that's 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 the biz, you know. That's a hard financial lesson to learn, though, Paul. Well, you know, Australia at that time didn't really do points. I mean, um, it was only when the American film started, you know, coming into Australia and making more movies that points really became a big thing, I think. You know, Mission Impossible and, and, and other films would come in and the actors would get points. And sometimes being successful films in America, you know, you know, two years after they'd worked on the film, they might get a check for 15 grand. And um, I didn't get any checks. How has this film defined your life? Um, it's an interesting one, I guess, because, um, you know, uh, prior to that, I, you know, I'd done theatre and dance as a kid and I'd done a couple of little experimental films as a kid. Um, I, you know, became a dancer. I was dancing with Sydney Dance Company and choreographing. Um, I guess as a kid, up until I did Strictly Ballroom, I was a bloke that was dancing my own steps. So... The film was perfect in that sense because, you know, Scott was a guy that danced his own steps. Um, since then, I've continued to dance my own steps. I've certainly had some wonderful opportunities and I've done films in America and um, up in Europe and Africa. Um, and, you know, it's, it's certainly given me opportunities back in Australia to do um, film and TV and the work I've done. So, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for that. Um, I'm not sure if it's defined my life in any sort of significantly different way, you know, I'm still dancing my own steps. So, you know, um, I've enjoyed the ride. I've enjoyed the the opportunities. Uh, I'm not sure. It's, it's an interesting one. Has it changed my life? I was just going to go and be a chore- choreographer and have a ballet company, which I did. Uh, but I'd always – I had thought about doing film um, – People still want to talk to you about this one, though, right? Yeah, and that's great, you know, because it's a film that people still feel good about. And, you know, people still Facebook me from all sorts of corners of the world saying, I just saw the film and it's great, or I've just shown my daughter or my son or my husband or my wife this film and it's great. So it's still, still, you know, people are still standing up at the end and clapping. And um, I guess I and the people that made the film are still moving people in such a positive way. And that's that's a pretty wonderful feeling. You know, there was a lot of talk about you at the time of this release, Paul. You were flagged as the, the next huge Australian film star. You had the world, it seemed, at your feet. Yep, yep. And then the year after, the next young bloke that did a film was flagged as the next big Australian film star and the next, you know, the next Melvins and the next, you know, Australia's hottest sex symbol. And, and then the year after that, it's someone else. So um, it's a very fickle business. Can you recall, though, at the time, like you're doing this international media circuit and you're thrust into this world of interviews and personal questions and the rotating round of journalists while you're s- sitting there in a hotel, uh, you know, auditorium or whatever. How did you cope with that? And, and did you have the stars in your eyes at that stage? Did you think, wow, uh, the world is my oyster? Um, no. Um you know, when I filmed Strictly, I was married and I had one child and my wife was pregnant with our second. Uh, when we kind of went on a bit of the world tour to to do the PR, my wife and two kids came with with us or with me. Uh, so I, I'm really grateful for that because I think that just meant I was uh, grounded. 
in a way, you know, you look at some young people that have that sort of fame and world media attention and they burn out, you know, with drugs or alcohol or, or whatever. You know, I'd been a dancer with City Dance Company for 10 years and, you know, had done a lot of radio and TV and media sort of things. So I, it wasn't completely new to me. The The level of it was quite new. Can I say in some of those interviews around that time, the international ones in particular, you did really well, but you, you looked a little startled. Well, it's pretty huge. You know, it's you're sitting in a room doing interviews and Tommy Lee Jones walks in and, you know, all these other actors because you're doing the whole movie circuit and it's like, it's truth. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in this round-robin sort of PR thing and all these amazing or, you know, very, very famous actors are walking in and doing interviews and you're saying g'day and they go, hey, love your movie and all that sort of business. So, you know, certainly... Um, it was a very unique experience, but again, I'm just grateful um, that I was married to my wonderful wife and had family and had some plans. Especially when Strictly started, I was opening, working on opening my own ballet company. Um, so you know, I I had stuff to do. Strictly Ballroom at the time, even though it was a bona fide hit, there there were those who questioned the acting abilities. Did you hear those criticisms at the time? Nope. If, it, if most people would come out of that film going, loved it, fantastic, that's a slice of Australiana right there. But you also had other people saying, oh, my goodness, that's that's not the best acting in the world. Didn't hear that at the time, though. I've never heard it. Awesome. Well, that's a very good thing, Paul. Well, you might be making it up because I said to you, um, you know, there's, I've been told plenty of questions, but um, I've heard all the questions. But, you know, never that man, today's... 2021, and you're the very first person that has ever mentioned that. Some people, thought, some people thought I was less than perfect. <laughs> they might not have just been talking about you. I think some international uh, viewers, you know, just trying to work out, is that really the way Australians are? Maybe well, that was part of the issue too because, you know, we were very Australian in that yeah, film, weren't we? So possibly, I don't know, maybe you're referring to the fact that there were people that thought it was overacted. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, we thought in rehearsals, we thought we were overacting. Uh, well, so, not so much. Well, yeah, me as well in the ballroom world, you know. And uh, it wasn't until Baz took us to a real-life ballroom competition that we realised we were underplaying it. And we, we went, we saw the real Barry Fives, we saw the um, real Kens and... Um, all of the real lizards and we were just stunned that they exist that not only do they exist they exist in this amazing over saturated over stated sort of over important world and from that point on you know we 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 weren't worried about overacting or overreaching the whole thing because in fact in that in the in the ballroom in that time in the I guess in the 90s it was just unbelievably full on so sure if people watch the film and said oh that's so over the top um, fine go to, <laughs> if you had gone to a ballroom performance or a ballroom competition you'd be astounded it's also a staple of baz's work though isn't it i mean it's over the top um it's meant to be exaggerated it's theater on film right absolutely it is but in the in the case of the ballroom because i've seen some of baz's other films and uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that, but certainly with Strictly Borum, I would say it, 
uh, it was very strongly rooted in reality. And um, whereas um, some of his other films are very, very over the top, um, Strictly was actually quite indicative of, of the world. It was actually an honest replication <laughs> or reproduction of it. Do, do you ever look at any particular scenes and wish you'd played them differently or wish they'd been set up differently? Um, there you go. There's a question I've not been asked. Um, do I? No, no. No, there's kind of no point, you know. Um, it was funny. When I was working with Gary Marshall and, you know, we would do a scene and, you know, they'd say, cut, check the gate, and they were happy. So check the gate means I'm happy with the scene, we'll move on to the next one. I looked at some of the actors that were working with him and they were really high-named actors and they would go up and go, is that all right, Gary? Was that okay? You You know, and I thought Gary's just said check the gate and that pretty much means he's happy. The time to second-guess that is in rehearsal uh, and perhaps when you're shooting because you might – be shooting a scene and go, you know, when you've finished a scene and Baz or the director might come up and say, are you happy with that? Do you want to do it again? Is there anything? That's the point to be questioning. After the fact, there's no point. So I don't bother. Who did you love working with on this film? Uh, Look, you know, obviously Tara, she was just wonderful to work with and um, Antonio, the you know, the Spanish dad. But I can't just. I enjoyed working with everybody. You know, there was there was no one there that I didn't enjoy working with. It's a huge cast, wasn't it? Bill Hunter. Yeah, Bill was great. Um, you know, they were they were all you know they were all, all brilliant. There was again, it was a kind of a possibly a, a naive time that I you know I've been on plenty of films since and that relaxed nature and joyous family fun is not there because all of a sudden the budgets are 50, 60 million and, you know, everyone's nervous and uptight. And so, you know, Strictly was such a great film to work on because it was just people having fun, people enjoying working with each other and telling the story. And um, it was very much family. I always speculate that for these big names to have jumped on board, you know, uh, so many great talents in there, uh, stalwarts of the Australian acting scene, joined this small project. They must have seen something in the script. And I've heard you say before that as you were making it, you knew you were doing something special. Well, I mean, a lot of people say to me, did you know it's going to be a success? And I went, no. But certainly, you know, we were making something special and whether it was going to be accepted by a wider audience is another question. Um, you know, and it's it's interesting. I've not asked, you know, any of the, the actors um, like Barry Otto and, and um, the rest whether they thought there was something interesting or special or did they think after reading the script it had great potential. Um, sometimes in Australia you've just got to take a job you know, and um, yeah. sometimes that's the reality of it. And you can turn around and people can say, wow, great choice. Did you know that was going to be it? And you go, no, I just needed the work. <laughs> it's, <laughs> you know, I've said no to some films for, for moral reasons and things like that. And and I later on I think, mate, that was a silly decision. You need the job. It's, a, you know, you're an actor. Do the work. Do you stay in touch with the cast? No, not really. Um, you know, it's been a long time. Occasionally Tara and I will touch base. Um, but, it's again, it's one of those things where 
if we bump into each other, we have a chat and all those things, but we're all just busy with our lives and, and trying to survive and looking for the next gig and, um, you know, it's it's a very transient sort of thing. Everyone blows into town and has a great party and then they blow out again and, you know, that's it and, and, and maybe we might see each other again on a set somewhere or whatever. But, um, yeah, as I said, it's that sort of real transient sort of um, lifestyle in a sense. Seemed like you were particularly close with Baz. Is that right? Oh, look, Baz and I got on, and um, you know we would go and play golf together and things like that on the days off, and um, you know, so, so yeah, we got on quite quite well. It, not 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 in touch these days. Haven't talked to Baz well, for a long time, really. Um, I think Baz Baz got a bit in Hollywood. You know, um, he he was doing his second film. Um, I forget what was the name. You know the name of the second film. No, it was his third film actually. Romeo and Juliet came next. Didn't yeah, it? so the one after that, Moulin um, Rouge. Moulin Rouge. And I was in America at the moment at the time doing some work on a film, and my agent kind of said that uh, Baz's casting director and were wa- wondering about my availability for you know Moulin Rouge. So of course, when I got back to Australia, I you know I rang Baz. Um, to say, hey, I'm back and I'm around and, you know, love to get involved and whatever. But, um, you know, I, I rang him about five times over the course of three weeks and at first everyone was happy to hear from me, but Baz was always busy. And by the time, the last time I rang, they weren't happy to hear from me. They were they were a bit like, you know, I was just an actor trying to beg for a job. Um, so, no, I haven't spoken to Baz Um that's got to be a bit of a sting, Paul, because that's not what you were doing. Well, it's a sting because, you know, what Strictly was about was, you know, family, you know, people working together and giving it all. And, um, you know, so this idea that, you know, we worked together really well and we were friends and, you know, all it needed was a phone call saying, oh, mate, I'm sorry, there's nothing in it for you or, you know, Whatever, but there were some other issues that went on, and sometimes I know uh, strictly. I think they sold the rights to Warner Brothers or someone else, and um, all of a sudden it becomes an American film, and maybe the Australian sensibility changes, and people change because of success or not. You know, that's just again the nature of the beast. Um, and you know, it is. Oh, sorry, that's my, that's my computer saying I've just got a Facebook message, and it's not from Baz. <laughs> <laughs> not from Baz. Okay, so it wasn't a falling out per se. It's just you fell out of touch, but still feels like that's a sadness for you. I guess, I, as I've said before, it's that transient nature of it. Um, you know, uh, you can be you do great work together, and then it, it kind of uh, then you you wander apart. I think the only thing is that. You know, there were some things, um, there were some other things that kind of went on that were a little bit disappointing that Baz had some control over to um, to look after his artists and that didn't happen and so that's a disappointment. What things are you talking about there for uh, those of us who aren't it, invested in that? There are a bunch of different things. I mean, it was very difficult that, you know, Strictly made a lot of money and, um, you know, there were, I guess, some people made a lot of money out of it and others didn't. And it's not sour grapes as such, but, you know, sometimes you kind of think, look, there was an opportunity where um, 
where Baz and his production company decided he he had his three films out, um, Strictly and uh, Mulan and Romeo and Juliet, and they decided they wanted to put out a three-box set of the three films, and as a bonus they wanted to put out a DVD of behind-the-scenes stuff. So all of a sudden out of the blue I got a fax because this is how long ago it was, I got a fax from the production company saying, oh, we're doing a three-CD set with behind-the-scenes things and we didn't realise, but we need your permission <clears throat> to use your, you know, your footage. And I said, yeah, no problems, how much are you paying? And they said, oh, no, we're not paying anything um, because it's it's a giveaway. So, you know, um, people aren't buying this behind-the-scenes thing. And I said, look, if you're putting it as part of a, a three-box set with a fourth set behind it you're selling it so you're making money out of it so i think it's fair that after all these years because i did i did years of pr for the film and never got paid for it so i just i just had enough and i said look i think you know you're going to make money out of it it's a business venture so i'd like to earn some money and they came back and said leonardo and nicole and those people aren't asking for a fee and i said that's fine they get points so you know i want i'd like to get a fee and, and look, at the end of the day, um, they refused to pay me a fee. And so I said, no, you can't use my likeness or anything. And um, when the fourth DVD came out, I saw there was a section of Baz, myself and Tara walking up the, the steps at the Cannes Film Festival, which is a very famous moment, and they'd pixelated my face. Oh, dear. So that's some of the stuff that went on, and, and that's the Hollywood stuff in a sense. Um you know, they wouldn't even give me two grand. And you go, really? I mean, just a token thing because I'm, you know, I'm actually, I'm, I was broke at the time being an actor, you know, you're stressed and and you're going to make money out of it and you've made $80 million or whatever, so how about helping me out? But, you know, um, so those sorts of things went on. So when I say that there was no falling out, in that sense but there was those sorts of things and you know there's a few other little stories like that and they're the disappointing stories because they certainly made you know good money out of it but they made good money out of it possibly by not you know um supporting some of the people that weren't broader theme here too that's that's just about the recognition and the compensation of australian actors and industry people i mean and I, I know the DVD you're referring to. It was very successful. In fact, it was at the height of DVDs where people like me were collecting DVDs. Now we're mm. trying to sell them on eBay, by the way. But, yeah, we were at the time that it was successful. And those three, that trilogy, was um, – I'm sure it was – it sold like uh, hotcakes. So I'm sure it did. And, you know, that fourth DVD that went with it helped sell it. But, you know, they um, – and if you're on points, then you're on, you were making money out of that, those sales. But if you're not on point – um, you you were getting nothing out of it, but they still wanted you to be a part of it. So, but I think it's offensive to to pixelate my face. I mean, that's that just goes to show um, some some pretty super high disregard for you know uh, some people that helped you know make you a success in a sense, isn't it? Mm. A lesson you learnt out of all of that experience right from the beginning of signing up because you, you've been part of this amazing project which Australians are proud of uh, across the board, not just the movie industry. We, we hold this to our hearts. Mm. You, you've got this 
I'm sure you're as proud of it as we all are, but yeah. it must leave a slightly bitter taste. Um, I don't dwell on it. I mean, we're talking about it now, you know, and I've, I've, I've told the story because this is part of the story that is my experience of Strictly. Um, but, it, you know, I've got other stories about TV, the TV world, and it's a pretty pretty cutthroat sort of business and um, can be very cutthroat and, you know, it can destroy people's mental health and careers and that's stupidly part of the industry. So I just keep, uh, I you know, keep as positive as I can, keep away from that sort of stuff and um, there's a lovely power in saying no. You know, Paul, one of the unspoken champions of Strictly Ballroom is the music. How important was the soundtrack to this film? Um, look, obviously the soundtrack was as important as the script, as important as the lighting, as important as the choreography and, um, you know, you might even say it was the glue that held the whole film together. Baz says that a lot of the dancing in this film was made to look much more professional than it actually was. But Well, he wasn't talking about me at that time. No, actually he wasn't <laughs> because he, he does talk very positively. He credits you, particularly that scene in front of the mirror. He says that's one of the most genuine moments of pure dancing ability in the film yes and i choreographed that scene so i, I was originally um approached by baz to you know choreograph some of scott's steps so there's a there's a couple of things um that i choreographed but that that scene in the mirror and you know before uh fran you know spies me dancing and says she wants to dance with me that uh, i choreographed that and and it was great because you know, Baz just said, you choreograph it and I'll film it. And, and um, we talked about how to film it and um, and that's what happened. So, um, yeah, that was, that was a, a good moment. How did you go about preparing uh, for the choreography for all of those dance scenes? Was there, I'm imagining it would have been a lot of preparation in those scenes. Yeah, well, we, we had a month. So basically we had a month of rehearsals and that included acting rehearsals, dance lessons and and then, you know, and then the choreography. So John O'Connell was the choreographer for the film and um, the great thing about choreography and dancers and choreographers is, you know, it's pretty collaborative by nature, it has to be. Um, and, and, you know, John was terrific and, you know, his work for, in the ballroom and all of that stuff was uh, amazing. Um, and then, you know, he... Again, working collaboratively, collaboratively with myself and Antonio because Antonio is a very, very well world-respected flamenco dancer. Um, and you do what you do, which is as a dancer, you just work your guts out and in the time frame you've got to present and do the very best you can in the moment you need to. You were damn fit. Yeah. I mean, that's funny. People would say to me um, – you're a dancer. How do you keep fit? <laughs> and I go, this, you know, you don't go to the gym. You go to work. You start work at, you know, uh, ten o'clock, and it's like doing a full on. If you can imagine doing the hardest gym session you can from ten thirty until six thirty with an hour for lunch, six days a week. That's what we did. It. That's what work was. Yeah. Of course, the camera also, Paul, seemed to be one of those unseen characters almost in those dance scenes. It was a great intimacy in Strictly Ballroom when the dance scenes were occurring. Yeah, it, without a doubt, um, you know, Baz used the camera as the as the fourth person sort of thing or the voyeur, which I guess is what the camera is, but um, the camera became your dance partner. And quite often, and I would be standing on the um, camera trolley or the dolly they call it, 
Um, and the, so it was a real close-up. I would actually be doing a little step turning on the camera dolly while the camera dolly turned around so in the counterway, and then I'd step off it and grab um, my partner and we'd go off dancing and the trolley would go the other way. And so I was actually dancing with the camera dolly, the camera operator and the dolly operator, and then I'd get off and dance with... Um, you know, either um, Tara or, or Liz, and you do it all seamlessly. Um, and that was part of what made, you know, the film and, and gave it that intimacy. And I must say, you know, I, if I blow my own trumpet for a minute, um, all of that's very hard to do. But uh, I, you know, with all my years of dance and my years as a choreographer, I understood how to kind of be able to do that. How fun. Dancing with the dolly and then onto the girl and then back to the dolly. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Well, you know, it, I think it was unique and is unique. Um, and you know, you go back and you look at Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly and and Ginger Rogers and some of those people. You know, they, you know, they would interact with the camera in that way um, also. So I guess Baz was bringing back some of those techniques. But I've got to say, it's not. It's look, I didn't find it hard to do, but it is hard to do. Paul, fact or fiction, it took four people four weeks to design and craft that jacket that you wore in the finale. Um, I've heard that. Where is it now? Uh, I think it's at the Museum of Contemporary Art, I think, in Sydney. Were you proud of wearing that jacket? Oh, it's, look, it was a great jacket. It was bloody heavy, though, I can tell you that, really. It looked heavy. Yeah, it was. It weighed a few kilos. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, you put it on and you felt the part. It, was, it wasn't just some flimsy thing that looked great. It, it, it had gravitas. The costumes in this film, of course, were the stars themselves. Tara says that you had it easy compared to her with the dancing because she was doing it all in high heels. Uh, well, I, 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 the flamenco shoes were high heels. In fact, <laughs> in fact um, I think 11 or – I said we had a month of rehearsal. I think 11 days out, I was um, rehearsing uh, in my flamenco boots and I was doing this, it's called a double, there you go, it's been so long since I've done ballet, I've forgotten all the terms, but it's a thing where you jump up in the air and do a double pirouette in the air and land and whatever. Um, I was, uh, du- double soda basque is what it's called and I was doing that and unfortunately came down on my heel and um, on a straight leg just cracked my um, heel over. And I've got to say, it hurt a lot. Um, and I was on crutches for nine days before we started the film. So, um, in fact, we were very concerned about how I was going to be. And and naturally, the very first scene that we shot in the film was the finale and the big dance. So, yes, Tara can complain about having to do it in heels, but, the, you know, <laughs> the... Um, the flamenco boots were, they had quite a heel on them. But look, I also agree with Tara and Ginger Rogers always said that, you know, Fred Astaire was great, but he didn't have to dance backwards in high heels. <laughs> there is some truth in that. You realise you made the Bond singlet famous as well, right? Oh, look, absolutely. It'd be nice to claim I made it famous. I just think I helped it with a resurgence. I had a, a bit of a campaign with them over a couple of years and there's a, a little clip you can find on the internet with Chesty and I dancing together and um, it was great, although the downside of that is I had a few people rather upset that singlets, the prices of the singlets went up after Strictly. They became a commodity. Indeed. Indeed. And, um, you know, it's nice to think that we took them from the image of a wife beater into the into the high arts. <laughs> 
<laughs> the blue singlet remains that. <laughs> I don't think so anymore. I don't really don't. That film made you a gay icon too. How did that sit with you? Well, I was a gay icon before then because um, as such, it, you know, in Sydney with Sydney Dance Company, it had a pretty strong gay following uh, as well as, you know, just it had a great following but there was a pretty strong gay contingent. So, um, you know, I uh, that that was – that wasn't new to me in that sense. I read that you, as a young lad, had it tough at times doing ballet and jazz. Did it bother you when this came out? So many people were speculating about your sexuality following the release of Strictly. Um, well, actually, after Strictly, I didn't get, I didn't feel anyone was speculating on my sexuality. Certainly, as a young bloke dancing, um, you know. <laughs> You, as a young boy or young teen, whatever, doing ballet, you must be gay. Um, and so, you know, there were the straight people that wanted to beat me up for it and then there was the gay guys that wanted to take me out. Um, but the thing about Strictly and one of the best things about it, um, amongst all of the best things, was that people who hitherto would have wanted to beat me up at the pub for being a dancer and therefore gay, they'd come up to me and one bloke came up to me one day and he said, you, you, my wife dragged me kicking and screaming to see your bloody movie and it was the best thing she ever done. And so there's the, the same guy that used to want to beat me up now was buying me a beer. The, the consequence of that was I was um, asked by Stephen Elliott to um, – and he offered me a role in um, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. And he just, turned it down. I turned it down and I really am denied for a period but – about it because obviously as an actor you you want to do films and you want to work and I just thought I can't do Priscilla because the same people that thought I was gay it's now okay for a guy to dance and that you know and if I go and do Priscilla that might just change that whole decision and people might turn around and go ah oh, yeah so he was gay or something so um well you know what Paul Jason Donovan turned it down because he was having his own publicity issues with is he or isn't he gay mm. and, it, and it's easy now to sit here in 2021 and say what's the big deal but it was actually problematic in a professional career back then did that have any bearing no your decision to turn it down no it, the 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 reason i turned it down was i'd finally broken through and said you can be a guy and you can dance and you don't have to be gay to do it but you can be a guy and you can dance and that's okay and it doesn't, Do you regret turning it down in hindsight? No. No, I don't. And In fact, I turned that down and then I got Exit to Eden. <laughs> so, but um, the thing about Exit to Eden is um, whilst, I mean, that got me to America and, I, you know, for seven years I went to America and made a, a movie a year. So, you know, um, if I didn't do Exit to Eden, would I have had that, that American career or not? I don't know. So, no, I don't regret turning um, Priscilla down. Priscilla. In Strictly, you weren't the quintessential movie hero. You were a beautiful male lead rather than a rough and tough one, which is what is usually synonymous with the male hero in a film. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, um, I guess that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, so I broke stereotypes, which is great. It's okay to be a bloke and still, you know, be in touch with your fem fem feminine side. You know, it's okay to be a thinker and a feeler. And, um, you know, I guess sometimes these stereotypical male roles are blokes that are too tough and have to find their softness or something, whereas this bloke, Scott, was completely comfortable in, um, 
his artistic side and and whatever femininity he may have had, although that never kind of entered into the thinking of playing the character. Scott was a dancer and therefore he's into um, art and music and um, softness and tenderness and it can be strong and powerful, but it's not that butch, um, out-of-touch sort of masculinity. The Time to Talk show is a podcast made by passionate amateurs who simply love pop culture. Unlike other podcasts, we can't raise revenue through traditional advertising, so we rely on the support of our listeners to keep us going. If you'd like to make a donation to Time to Talk, click on the link in the description. Your support will help with our production costs and allow us to keep bringing you content that celebrates honours and skewers the very best and worst in the world of popular music, film, trends and culture. Thank you for enjoying our shows. We absolutely love our growing legion of loyal listeners. You've already said you were a young father when you made this film. I'm sure your kids have seen it by now. What do they think of Dad in Strictly Ballroom? Well, they love it, you know. Um you know they've all obviously seen it and and but you know it's kind of twofold to them too because they've also had to you know um put up with people approaching me and talk to me and um ignore them and my wife and you know there's there's you know there's that other side that they, they, they're proud and happy and love the film and love what I did in it but then the other side of having to deal with you know fame and whatever that means um they've had some unpleasant experiences well you know just if you're out and about and people want to talk to you and you're trying to look after your kids and people don't really care that you're there looking after your kids they just want to you know a photo or or you know chat to you or this or that um everyone thinks fame's terrific it's fame is a byproduct of just doing a job well that happens to be, <laughs> you know, in the public eye. You know, um, I don't really think fame's anything to sort of strive for. You know, Strictly generated a lot of very famous Australian expressions. Do you have a favourite? Um, I don't, but uh, it's funny because uh, I'm I'm now a counsellor in the Mornington Peninsula Shire, which is something I'd never thought I would do. What's What kind of counsellor are you? Uh, uh, well, I'm on the shy. I'm on the. Ah, sorry, I thought you meant like a therapeutic. No, no, counsellor, law, I guess. So you know, I'm now counsellor Paul Mercurio, and uh, I have look after the Watson Ward, and um, it's a political, you know, um, local government, which is something I never, ever, ever thought I'd do. But that's that's a whole different ball game. But one of the other counsellors likes to ring me up, and he'll say to me, "Paul, can I bend your ear for tick?" <laughs> <laughs> and the first time we did it because his wife is an ex-dancer and loves the film and she puts him up to it and um i went yeah sure mate what and then i went ah oh, i haven't ah. for a long time so um, <laughs> so he likes to do that to me i've got my happy face on today les yep yep i often say that i will say that to people at times i say have you got your happy face on by the way, what is the BOGO POGO? Can you finally solve that mystery? Um, thankfully, uh, it's a step that I wasn't involved in and um, no, <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> and also Paso Doble. Ha, Paso Doble. Yeah. yeah, I always loved Antonio going, you, you dance the Paso Doble? 
I just love that scene. <laughs> it's a fantastic whole scene that at, oh, at Fran's house. You know, it? it's just it's magical, and the train. You know, the whole thing is just magical. The train coming through, and um, and you know, being there filming it, it was you know very late at night. We had two shots with that train um, coming through, and then reversing it coming again, and you know everything needed to line up, and you know that just the, the it's the technical stuff in the background and the work that it took. And the hours of you know etc. and and then when you watch the scene, it's just so magnificent. I read that Fran's house was the most expensive part of the movie. Um, yeah, look, I have no idea. It was a little shack in Ultimo, um, which is no longer there. But back in the eighties and nineties, uh, it was a little shack. It must have been a railwayman's shack or something. And the train was there with a big tunnel, and they obviously, obviously, you know, built things around it. So I, I've not read that. This film captured something that's just so Australian. I was a little loud. I snuck away from school. People said it was great. No, none of my friends wanted to see a movie about ballroom dancing. I wanted to see it, and I'd never done anything like that. It wasn't in my character. Snuck away to a little movie theatre. It was, it was hard to find one playing it at the beginning. Uh, finally found one near the city on the outskirts of Sydney. Went in there, um, was worried that they were going to call the school. <laughs> there was something so magical about this film, something so Australian. I could see my family. The first scene, I thought, this is not a movie about ballroom dancing. This is my family. Yeah. You stupid, stupid man, will you please be quiet? Mm. I mean, it was my mother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that you would say that because, you know, all the professionals and the, you know, the money people and the distributors are going, he wants to see a film about ballroom but you've just so brilliantly put your finger on it and it's not about boredom, it's about families. Why do you think it captured people's imaginations, not only in Australia but all over the world? Um, look, at the time and for a few years after that, I just kind of figured the world needed a, that story, you know. You could do that. You could do the story now and it might flop. Well, for example, could it be remade today? I don't think so. I, I just... Um, yeah, look, I don't think so because part of its story, part of its appeal, I think, too, was that, you know, the people in it were first-timers. You know, there was a lovely blend of first and, you know, first-timers and experienced people and it was a lovely blend of of giving it a go, um, trying something new, doing some new steps. You know, if you tried to remake it, it, it I just don't think you could capture that raw innocence and naivety you just can't the stage play just you know no offense to anyone I'm, I'm sure everyone did wonderful work but it's i just think it would only ever be a shadow of what the film was in the united states it was compared to dirty dancing but had come just before it yeah i mean i love dirty dancing i went and saw dirty dancing in the theater I, I loved also all that jazz and um and fame and you know um but complete, very different film, I think. You've already mentioned Strictly Ballroom. It's sort of taken off and has a new life all of its own now. Uh, I'm assuming that you weren't ever invited into those stage ad adaptations that you've spoken about or this second life that it, or this continuous life that it seems to have. No, funnily enough, um, funnily enough, we were kept well away from it. Could have made a cameo, Paul. Never. But... Um, we were we were kept away. Like for some strange reason, there was a decision somewhere to not even get Tara and I to, you know, help with the PR or um, 
to be involved in any way. Um, what was that about? Well, you'd have to ask them. Um, there was one point where the father, uh, Barry Otto's character, was leaving the musical. And, in fact, the casting director approached me and said, would I be interested in doing the part? And I said, look, I haven't, I haven't seen it, so can I get some tickets and come and have a look and then we can have a, a chat? And she said, yeah, yeah, come along. And I said, and can I get, well, can I, myself and my family come? So I want five tickets. And they said no. Good grief. So um, that was that. But that's part of some of this weird attitude that went on. You know, you, you approached me about maybe playing the role of the father. I was considering it, but you don't want to give me five tickets. I don't want to work with you. Paul, your relationship with this film is odd. It's not my relationship with the film. My relationship with the film's quite good. It's 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 the relationship from the other side after the film. And mm. look, I've I've not, you know, I've not done anything wrong. I did stand up for myself when they didn't want to pay me any money for the, um, you know, the free DVD, so to speak. Um, maybe maybe they didn't like that. Um, I. I don't think it's just me, though, and I know that there are others <clears throat> that have gone through, others who are in the film have gone through a similar thing. You did go on to be a judge in Dancing with the Stars, which was definitely capitalising on the theme of the film. Um, yeah, uh, I was actually asked if I would, um, could do the original uh, Strictly Come Dancing in London. Uh-huh. And um, to be honest, I said to my agent, thank God it's in London because it's not really something I, th- I thought I'd wanted to do. Um, I did explore doing it, but I just signed a contract for a, uh, for a TV series in Australia. So I was kind of bound to stay in Australia and do the TV series. Um, and then, of course, Dance with the Stars came along and they asked if I would be involved and, um, you know, working actor. You go, yep, sure. Something went wrong there, though, didn't it? You weren't on it for very long. Um, no, I guess I did seven series. I think they wanted to do 14. So um, I did seven series. Um, at the And I was on a contract um, series by series. So, you know, they'd contract me for series one and then issue a contract for series two. Um, at the end of seven, the seventh series, a new producer came on um, to produce, you know, series eight, nine and ten. And uh, this producer was talking to a gentleman and told this gentleman that he didn't like me and, you know, didn't like how I was. And uh, the producer didn't realise that the person he was talking to was my manager at the time. Um, So we kind of knew the writing was on the wall. When um, they wouldn't tell me until a week before the show went to air that they weren't going to use me, and that's that's TV and that's the, you know. But I rang up one of the, the bosses at Channel 7 and kind of said, um, why me? Why, why have you got rid of me? And this is the quote. This is what he said to me. He said, I'm sorry, Paul, you're just too genuine. You're just too nice. You've got to have a thick skin in this industry, Paul. You sure do. Now, you're a man who loves his food these days too. Is that right? Well, look, I was really lucky. Um, I've always liked to cook. Um, I find the process of cooking to be really creative you know it's like you know people have said to me how on earth did you get into food you've done dance and choreography and acting and food how did that come about and I just say it's telling a story so if I'm acting a character I'm telling a story if I've choreographed a ballet that ballet tells a story if if um 
you know, if I'm acting a scene or if I'm cooking a dish, I'm telling a story. So sort of to me, it makes sense. And it's a creative process. Love the, again, love the creativity. I've written three cookbooks, uh, all my, you know, my recipes, and it's um, I've just had fun with it. I understand the cookbooks go fairly well too. What, what's next for, for Paul Mercurio? Yeah, you know, it's a very um, – very interesting point, really, because um, as an actor or as a freelance creative person, you never know. Um, you know, I've got – I make my own spice rubs for the barbecue scene and that's just trundled along. COVID really affected it badly. Um, you know, I'm a counsellor now and that's a four-year part-time job where you spend 30 hours a week at least. That's, I guess, what I do naturally. So with my food shows, you know, I really like that. With Dancing with the Stars, you were kind of put in a box and, um, you know, you kind of had to be that box and I, you know, I didn't enjoy that part of it. But with my food shows and, and when I host stuff or when I do cooking demos um, for companies or groups or festivals, it's just it's just you're up having fun. You know, it's a bit of comedy, it's a bit of serious, it's a bit of a journey, it's a bit of learning, it's a bit of inspiration. Um, it's nourishing. Final question, Paul. Are you content? Oh, no, not really. I think um, the last few years have been too hard, to be honest. I, I thought as I got older, things would get easier. And, um, you know, they've actually got harder. And that's partially being an actor. And, you know, my CV is pretty good. I think when you can, when someone says, I don't want you to work for me because you're too nice and too genuine, you, on one hand, you go, that's, on one hand, the compliment is wonderful. But the fact that, you're you're losing a job is is um, very conflicting. So um, so the last five years have been pretty tough in the industry because there's not been a lot around, and I'm getting older, and you know the TV and film industry generally focus on young younger people, or you know they'll be doing shows on ethnic different ethnic groups and lives and stories and. Um, I'm looking forward to being content, actually. Um, my wife and I talked about that today. and uh, I've got four years on this council job. Uh, I've got to find work because it's part-time, so I really need to find other work to survive. But we've already, we're going for a drive tomorrow at, towards Gippsland, and we're going to this little town that has a little cafe for sale and cafe bar. And we're just... We don't have the money to do it, but we're, we're just dreaming. We think maybe at the end of four years we'll move out to the country or seaside and open a fish and chip shop with a pub and um, just live the good life. That is the Australian dream right there. <laughs> is it? Yeah. What, what, what would it take to make you content financial security? Well, that's the big problem. You know, I've had a fantastic life, but it's feast and famine. Yeah. You know? And when I was in feasting, I didn't quite realise that, you know, it would be feast and famine. So by the time the famine started hitting, I wasn't prepared for it because I've not been very smart money-wise. Um, you know, I've earned some sort of good money, but, you know, I've, I'm not, and I haven't spent it on big things. You know, people have flown people to LA and, you know, had dinner parties and taken people to dinner and I don't have a big Mercedes car or anything like that. Um, big misconception, isn't it, that when you've been in a film like, Strictly Ballroom and had some Hollywood success to whatever degree that that you're pretty much set. Well, I think I told you this when we talked a while back. I got paid thirty five thousand dollars to do Strictly Ballroom, 
So when people see me and they go, Jesus, what are you doing here? Or why are you doing this job? I mean, I've worked on building sites and they go, what are you doing? Do you own this building site? And I go, yeah. Or you look like that bloke from Strictly Ballroom and I'll go, yeah, geez, I will. sorry about that. I'll say, yeah, people told me that, but, geez, I wish I had his money. And they go, yeah. So, yeah, there is a misconception and that's part of the the, the tritus of fame, you know. Not even a year's income. Well, not not $35,000 back then. I mean, back then when I was dancing with Sydney Dance Company, I was on forty grand a year and that, you know, that was considered to be one of the highest kind of wages in contemporary ballet in the 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, look, financial security would be lovely because the last five years have been real famine and, uh, you know, you get tired of the insecurity of that, knowing, you know, understanding will I get a job or will I have to sell the house and where are we going and all of those things. So um, I can possibly not blame anyone but myself for not managing the, the feast years better. But it's it's a very difficult kind of profession to, um, you know, there's no stability. So it's you got money, you go, woohoo. Now, of course, if I get a bit of a job, it, you squirrel it away and um, because you know that you, you get a job and you work for a month and that means it's got to last for the next six. I've had my own bar here a few years ago and with all my food and all my re- recipes, which went really well, except... The partner was a long, thieving scumbag, which I found out, you know, nine weeks after opening and had to leave. Um, so I've got plenty of experience. So now just to put it into absolutely, yeah. Take that wisdom and apply it. Are the kids all well? Your family's good? Yeah, my kids are all good. Now, I apologise. If anyone's hearing this, clicking, it's me playing That's me playing with my pen. You should have said, put your pen down, Paul. My apologies. No, I was curious about it. I, I, everyone self-soothes in their own way, Paul. Yeah, I just picked the pen up and started doing that and realised. Um, uh, no, look, all the kids are well. You know, life, it's, it's an interesting thing, life. It's a journey and sometimes we watch our kids go on a journey that we don't want them to. Um, you know, whether they go through a bit of hardship or a, or a this or a that, and then you see them going down the journey that you're really happy about and you get excited. And you've got to realise, you know, certainly as a parent, um, ultimately we're facilitators. We do our very best to give our kids the very best opportunity to develop and become whole, grounded people, and then, then you've got to let them go. You know, I still remember when I took their training wheels off and let them go and... They just said they had to ride or fall off and scrape their knee. That's their job now. Well, you're talking my language now, Paul. Any regular listener to this show will know Megs, who sometimes co-hosts with me, has just gone off to university, and I have told plenty of people this. I never imagined what a devastating experience. I was only ever on the quest to get him there because that's where he wanted to go. But as soon as he went, then this horrific scenario dawned on me that he's gone yep and he's on his own um I he's not gone though is he no, just, no. it was like losing a limb and i didn't expect uh, it. look my my eldest daughter moved out um, by stealth because um she had chronic fatigue and lay on the couch for eight years watching cooking shows so she's a very good cook um but she finally got better and got a boyfriend and went to uni and it was easier to stay at her boyfriend's parents' place than where we lived. So she kind of stayed there and all of a sudden, after a year or two, we went, Struth, she's moved out. <clears throat> With my younger two, I'd been away somewhere and they decided they wanted to move out together and I really didn't want them to move out because they're um, – well, I don't want them to move out. You know, they're young and 
I'd been away and I came home and they said, Dad, we're looking at a flat on Thursday. Do you want to come? And I went, no. And anyway, I went along, hated the flat, <laughs> hated it. And they loved it and they got it. And then, of course, they moved out. And, of course, I helped them move out, which is the, you know, the worst thing you kind of can, you know, you may as well cut off each limb. And um, after they'd moved out, I went home and I went up because we had, had two-story house at the time, and I went into each of their bedrooms and I lay on the floor and wept. Just and I was amazed the grief and mm-hmm. uh, I honestly wept the grief you know that uh, that whole thing and it surprised me but oh my god it was um, you know it I was amazed that um, I did it I was amazed that that's how I felt but that's how I felt and I guess doing that and weeping and and grieving in that moment was needed. Because you don't want to hang on to that. But each time they come home for a while and they leave again, <laughs> you know, there's a part of you that goes, oh, really, do you have to go again? Um, but, yeah, so so I understand how you felt and the depth of grief is really surprising, isn't it? Funny that the universe made us cross paths at this point in both our lives because that idea that is in the back of my mind, which I'm coming to terms with, isn't true, which is he's coming back. Just it's only a week, maybe, uh, but he's not actually. This is he's he's now out there in the world. He's, well, he's not coming back. Mine came back, and um, not my oldest because she was well and truly kind of gone. Um, my middle one's come back, but she's come back because she's had health issues, and so she's come back and lived with us for six months, and she's had, you know, a back operation and things. And um, the youngest one came back for six months because he and her, she and her boyfriend were a bit lost and whatnot, and then they kind of split up. So they, you know, whether they may come back for a period but in a sense they are gone but it's what we're meant to do apparently it's what we were born to do to raise them well and i'm sure you did like me and you can look back and be proud of all the all the stuff that you did but nobody sort of tells you at the end that you get a big fat kick up the bum when they go and you're left on your own but there you go yeah that's life i guess paul i'll tell you what we started off talking about strictly ballroom we got Pretty heavy, pretty pretty quickly, didn't it? Neither one of us can support the other with that because we're both going through it. Well, that's life, isn't it? That's, it is you know, that, yeah. that's the that's that's the wonder of the journey. And um, you know, even mm. I'm, we can all reflect and go. You know, as I said, things have got harder for me, and I'm surprised at. But that's still life. That's my journey. And obviously, there's the lessons that I need to learn. And um, you know, I, I'm open to it, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. And I do my best to learn them and that's what life is whether you love it or hate it it's you you have to live it you know what paul another way of looking at it you're on the cusp of your next adventure i'm sure that that is true for both of us so paul mercurio the star of our beloved australian favorite strictly ballroom and you can share his passion for cooking apparently and other things on his website paulmercurio.com is that right yep it's paulmercurio.com and if you want to follow me on um, instagram it's Paul underscore Mercurio underscore official. That's where you can find out all the new things that you're about to do with your your new world that you're now finding yourself in, Paul. Paul, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you very much for um, being interested and willing enough to spend some time with me. I appreciate it.